Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Today's reading is from Mark 10, 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The word of the Lord. Amen. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the question that is asked by the person that we call the rich young ruler in verse 17. And it probably represents the most important question any single one of us can ask. That question is critical. Knowing the answer is critical. Because eternal life is in the balance. And so as we look at this passage, that is the question that frames everything about this passage. What must I do to inherit eternal life. And so if that question is on your mind, please pay attention this morning because the answer will be given in very clear terms. We've been in these last few weeks uh, in the Gospel of Mark noticing the theme of discipleship at the fore, the question of what does it mean to follow him after Jesus gave the message that he is uh, the, the Christ he uh, uh, begins immediately to tell everybody, uh, tell his disciples what it means to follow him, to bear their cross, to, to uh, deny themselves and, 
We've gone through several of these passages that have shown the importance of prayer for the discipleship, the importance of fixing our vision on Jesus for our discipleship. Last week, we saw the importance of being uh, at war against sin in our lives and resting and trusting in the gospel as the only hope in our lives as disciples. This week, Jesus continues to roll right through key subjects for discipleship, and he hits upon a very sensitive subject. He hits upon money. He hits upon our wallets. Again, just as last week I got to talk about uh, hell and sin and divorce, I'm just as excited to get to preach to you about your greedy little fingers. Um, But that is what we have here this morning. We have Jesus giving us probably, if I were to guess, one of the choice paragraphs that we would like to have been skipped over in our Gospel of Mark. But we have it. It is here, and we must deal with it. Why is money such an issue? Why do we squirm already knowing that eh, a sermon on money? Because we love money. I stand with you. Money is so helpful. Money gets things done. Money provides security. Money provides significance. The worst thing I could think of is to be without money in some senses of the word. And so money has, for many of us, become that that thing that represents meeting all of our needs. And the reason that money is such an important issue that money shows up in the gospel, not just here but several times, is because money has such a high probability of replacing our trust in God. Because the money takes care of it. And so our trust in God and our reliance on money are on this constant tension and collision. And it is in this tension and collision between money and trust in God that the question, who will inherit eternal life, comes to us. We have to face this tension and we must make sure that we resolve it correctly because it is in this context of money that the question of who will inherit eternal life is answered. Who is the true disciple is answered in the context of money. Now, if you have your uh, little half-sheet handout. Uh, I want to do something on the front end of this sermon just to help you uh, follow along. If you look at this passage, you'll see that it's broken into three paragraphs. If we look at verse 15, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. If you skip down to verse 17, uh, the rich young ruler says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then if we go down a little bit further to verse 23 into that third paragraph, Jesus will say how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Do you see how all three of those paragraphs are taking up the same question? All three of these paragraphs are posing the question, who is saved by the gospel? Who is saved by the gospel? And each paragraph that we look at is teaching us something specific about the person who is saved by the gospel. In fact, we will see in each of these paragraphs an attribute 
that must be true of the person who is saved by the gospel. So when we go through this passage, we are going to see that there are three attributes of the person that is saved by the gospel. Why do we have three? Some people ask the question, why why has the outline got three points? There are three paragraphs. Each paragraph gives us a unique attribute. The whole structure of our outline is based on our commitment to expository preaching. The reason there are three points is because the text gives us three points, one in each paragraph. And the reason that we do this and the reason I I try to give you these outlines each week is, is so that you see the structure of the word, that you recognize that God's word is coherent, that it has a point, that paragraph one relates to paragraph two, relates to paragraph three. It's to help teach you as you read your Bible on your own to read contextually. When we have a question about what does the Bible mean in this verse, the best advice I can give you is to read the next verse. And the verse after that, because it is when we read the Bible and understand it by paragraphs that we understand the individual sentences. So as we look at this text, we must recognize that Jesus is driving a very important point. Three paragraphs put together in the Gospel of Mark are driven to answer this question, who inherits eternal life? Who is saved by the gospel? And Jesus wants us to understand this because our own souls depend upon it. He has given us in these paragraphs three attributes of the person that is saved by the gospel. So now let us take this text paragraph by paragraph and see what it is, who it is, what are the attributes of that person who is saved by the gospel. In that first paragraph, verses 13 through 16, we find the first attribute. That attribute is this. The attribute of the one who is saved by the gospel is they possess childlike trust. The one who is saved by the gospel possesses childlike trust. Let's look at verse 14 again. Uh, Jesus says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It is to people who are in some sense like children that the kingdom of God, which is a synonym for heaven, which is a synonym for eternal life, that is the people that belong, it is children that belong to the kingdom of God. Or I should say it is people that are such as children that belong to the kingdom of God. Now, this is a, a startling thing. The disciples absolutely do not understand this. That is why they try to stop the children from coming. Because children, especially in that culture, but in reality, ours as well, they're nobodies. I don't mean that in any negative sense, but children are not put, put in the place of making decisions. Children are not the people that lecture us about the important topics of the world. Children are not the people who run things. Children are nobodies. They're utterly dependent. So when Jesus says to such belongs the kingdom of God, when he says to such as a child belongs the kingdom of God, it's important for us to know what he means. What is a child and why is a a child the the kind of person that belongs in the the, the kingdom of God? Well, if it were childishness, that, that would be a relief. But it's not childishness. The Bible nowhere celebrates immaturity, nowhere celebrates childish activity, childish 
uh, behavior, being selfish and being petty and, and, and being whiny and throwing tantrums. I think the kingdom of heaven would be a lot fuller if that was the criteria for, for us getting into heaven, right? Uh, but that's not it. That's not what he is talking about. He is not saying tantrum like a child and you will be in the kingdom of heaven. Nor is he talking about innocence. Jesus does not prescribe to the view that children are innocent. He has probably uh, been in our nursery and has firsthand evidence of how rowdy and sinful and disobedient our children are. There is no uh, doctrine of the innocence of children in Scripture. And so Jesus is not saying, be like a child, i.e. be innocent. Nor is he celebrating their ignorance. Uh, None of these things represent what he means by a child as an example of who belongs in the kingdom of God. What he is focusing on, what he wants us to understand about what it is about a child that, that is in the kingdom of God is this. Children live by complete trust. Children live by complete trust. They live by total dependence. There isn't any question in a child's mind that they are absolutely dependent upon their parents to provide the meal, to provide the shelter, to provide all of their needs. They live in total dependence and they live by complete trust. They don't come and ask the parents, do we have enough money for food tomorrow? They just, in a healthy family, trust that that meal will be there. And that trust is sound and solid. A child belongs in the kingdom of God because a child recognizes and possesses the fact that they offer nothing. And yet they depend upon everything. And in offering nothing and depending upon everything, they are secure. They are content. They are not afraid. They do not have anxiety. And they have it simply because they live with childlike trust. This is what Jesus is saying a disciple must be like. A disciple must possess childlike trust. This cannot be made more critical than what we read in verse 15. I'll read it again. Truly, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is saying this is an essential. There's no getting into heaven without this. If we do not come to God, if we do not receive the kingdom of God like a child, we don't enter it. And he has made this Emphatic, doubly emphatic. You'll notice that he starts this sentence with the word truly. Underneath the word truly is the word amen. That is the way Jesus says, I'm announcing a big truth here. This is a non-negotiable truth. Puts blinkers on it so that we're paying attention to every time he says truly, we should say, okay, whoa, stop and listen. But then more than that, in in the uh, syntax, he uses an emphatic negative, a, a, a double negative. Now, that in English makes a positive, but in, in Greek, it makes an emphatic negative. It is not, definitely not. This person that does not come with childlike faith does not, does definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you have the NIV translation in front of you, they, they translate this as will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, childlike trust 
in Jesus' words, is a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite. It's not something that we attain to. It is something we must start with. And so I think this tells us very importantly, when the Bible talks and uses the word faith, what it means by the word faith. Faith is not knowledge. It is not saying I have an understanding of the facts of the gospel. I know the facts of the gospel. You want me to tell you the facts of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for sin, rose three days later. I know those facts. I'm not saying those facts aren't important. They're very important. But they are not in and of themselves, by themselves, saving faith. Nor can we say that that saving faith is just general belief. Yes, I believe Jesus died for sins. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. That, that, that can be said without any, any stakes, any skin in the game. We can, we can uh, be very much a part of our culture with just those words. What Jesus means, saving faith is, is the faith that we see a child have towards his parents. It is total, complete trust. Faith is trust. Faith is is knowing and putting your weight entirely upon the gospel to save you. In fact, that's the example that I think teaches pretty well. I know I've used it before, but we'll use it again. Knowledge, that's a stool. Belief, that stool is designed to hold my weight. I believe that stool will hold my weight. But trust Trust is sitting on it and expecting it and relying upon it to hold my weight. You can do a lot, but not trust. And the scripture right here makes it explicit. Childlike trust is what you must have. You must have that trust to receive the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. But this also is good news. This is good news because look at this. If a child can enter, anyone can. Anyone can come into the kingdom of God because the prerequisite is not being important, is not being accomplished, is not being sinless, is not being innocent. The requirement is simply trust. That what God says is true. Trust that the gospel will save you, will remove your sins, and will give you eternal life. And look, look at the syntax in verse 15. I say to you, whoever does not receive, receive is in the present tense. The kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. Enter it is in the future tense. But what is being said here is very cool, very, very wonderful. You can receive the kingdom of God now by putting your trust in it. And if you receive it now by putting your trust in it now, you will receive it when you come into it. In the kingdom of the kingdom of God is yours. Is that good news? If a child can enter, anyone can. That's that's the first attribute. They possess childlike trust. Now the second attribute, the second attribute drives a little closer to the bone. They forsake 
self-sufficiency. Those who are saved by the gospel possess childlike trust, and second, they forsake self-sufficiency. And here we are looking at that second paragraph, verses 17 to 22, where we meet what is often called the rich young ruler, because we discover these are the three attributes of him when you compare him in the parallel text of Matthew and Luke. He's rich, he's young, and he is a ruler. The rich young ruler comes right on the heels of Jesus' pronouncement about coming into the kingdom of God as a child. And that is that he and, and the, the starkness of this is impressive. The rich young ruler represents the polar opposite of a child. He is not dependent. He is independent. He is ruling. Uh, he is he is self-sufficient. And what's so troubling? About this passage, as I, as I study it, is this man sincere? This man is sincere. He, he comes. I, I, I do not think that he's uh, putting on a show. He comes, he kneels before Jesus, and he asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if, if, if there is a, a seeker in the Bible who is sincere, this, this person demonstrates a desire to know eternal life, a desire to learn from Jesus, a desire to be submissive to Jesus as an authority. He is sincere, and yet he's driven away. He's sent packing. He leaves this passage not with Jesus. That's very scary. A sincere seeker ends up being outside the kingdom because what Jesus says to him is something that he cannot abide. I think what the rich young ruler shows us as we go through this passage is that the number one enemy of childlike trust is our own sense of self-sufficiency. Our own sense of self-sufficiency is at war with childlike trust. So what is self-sufficiency? The rich young ruler, I think, gives us two very key examples of what self-sufficiency is. The first example of self-sufficiency in the rich young ruler is finding sufficiency in works righteousness. Now, what I mean by works righteousness is I have done good, therefore I am good. And if I am good, then I should be saved. So the first sense of self-sufficiency that this man demonstrates is a commitment to works righteousness. He comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher. And it's a startling thing when Jesus stops him right there and says, wait, 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 wait. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God Alone. No one is good except God alone. Who works with that definition? Everywhere I go, I am told this is a good person. He's a good guy. Great person. We throw the word good around quite easily. We throw the word around good around uh, 
almost to anyone. So-and-so's a good person. That's a, a good uh, dog. That's a good hamburger, whatever. There, there's all kinds of the use of the word good, but Jesus wants us to stop for a moment and sober up. Do you really know what the word good means? Do you really know what good looks like? Because the only truly good person is God himself. And if you do not recognize that standard of goodness when you say, there's a good guy, you don't understand what it means to be good. I think of the, the passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where we have Isaiah, who was a, a righteous prophet, who works in the court of God, he works in the temple of God. He has been a, a spokesman for God. He has been a vessel of God's word. He is, uh, by all human standards, righteous and above reproach. And yet, when he gets a revelation of the true, holy, holy, holy God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he sees the seraphim, and he sees the majesty of the one true God, and all the gravity of his goodness on display, the veil lifted, this righteous man in man's eyes, Isaiah, screams out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. When he says, Woe is me, he is saying, Let me disintegrate, let me disappear, let me be judged as a sinner because I have seen the true goodness and holiness of God and I am woeful, worthy of judgment in comparison. But this man has a very glib understanding of goodness. He has a very common understanding of goodness when he uses the word good. And Jesus questions that. So to take that a step further, Jesus in verse 19 takes the man to the Ten Commandments. He takes him to the second table of the law and he he lists off uh, several of the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And in verse 20, the man responds sincerely, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I have kept from my youth. In this man's heart, he's done the law. He doesn't experience any conviction that these these laws he has fallen short of. Now, it's very likely that the rich young ruler is not applying the law like Jesus gives the law in the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about the heart. But as he understands the law, as he's been raised in it, as he's, as he's gone to rabbi school, as he's been in a, a Sabbath school and all these different things, he has learned that he has fulfilled the law. And he can say to Jesus without any you know, question at all, yeah, I've kept the law. I'm a good person by this definition. He is sincere But notice that even though he feels like he's a good person, even though he feels like he has fulfilled the law, Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath him in verse 21 when he says, One thing you lack. All that I'm a good person doesn't measure up, doesn't equal eternal life. There is something he lacks. 
Now this should sober us. This should really cause us to pause. You can truly have done all of this. You can truly say to Jesus, I have, I have fulfilled all these commandments from my youth and still be outside of the kingdom. You see, works righteousness gave him a sense of self-sufficiency and yet Jesus looks at his works and says they are not sufficient. What Jesus is exposing to this man is the hard reality that not a single one of us can be truly righteous when we compare ourselves to the law. We can go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and discover this wisdom from Solomon. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You see, the, 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 the way that we like to think about it is, I'm good, I'm, I'm better than that person. Yeah, I've got some sins, but, but who's perfect? But perfection is the only works righteousness that, that could possibly be acceptable. And yet, there is not a single person who can say, I am righteous all the time. I have done good and never sinned. And so works righteousness is a poor ground for finding sufficiency, self-sufficiency. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 makes this uh, simple, puts it in one sentence. Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's a, a funny dynamic that as we know more of the law, we're more aware of how much we violate it. And so when we seek to approach God with the self-sufficiency of being a good person, and being a good person, that means uh, he will accept me. I will, I will end up on the right side of the curve. Jesus is showing to the rich young ruler and showing to all of us, that's a bad bet. That's a bad bet. And the second way that we see self-sufficiency showing up in the rich young ruler is this. The idolatry of money. The idolatry of money. Now before we go any further, I want us to note something very important. Jesus is not anti-wealth. Jesus is not saying that you have to absolutely uh, be poor to be in the kingdom of God. He is not saying that you cannot uh, enjoy your money or use money for recreation. He is not saying any of that. What he is saying in this passage is that he is against the idol of wealth. He is opposed stridently, uncompromisingly to the idol of wealth. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And then verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, what Jesus is dealing with, with this young man, is the fact that his trust and desire in money was in fact greater than his trust and desire for God. 
And so Jesus quoted half of the Ten Commandments, and the man checked each one of those off and said, yes, I've done fine. But it's also important the commandments that Jesus did not list off. What commandment is this man violating where he has put his love of money, his trust of money, above his love for God? What commandment is he violating? The very first one. You shall put no other gods before me. You see, money has taken the place and has functioned for him like God. It is his security. It is his significance. It is why he feels like he will be okay tomorrow because he is trusted in his possessions. But in doing that, he has violated the very first commandment. He has made something not God greater than God. And what we have to face here is a stark reality. The rich young ruler reveals that good works and a good life cannot hide from God a greedy heart. If your heart is greedy, if the true God of your heart is money, and you still have a good life and good works, it will not pass the sniff test with God. Because at the very fundamental seat of your existence is not God, but something created. And so it is blasphemy what you represent in front of God. We must, like I say, go into the heart here. Do you have the idol of money? Has money become an idol? I was convicted by this quote from Tim Keller, who wrote in his book, Counterfeit Gods, this. He's a pastor of many years, and he writes from that experience. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from the, the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Decades of being a pastor, and yet he has never found someone come to him and admit greed, the idol of money. And yet if you read the scriptures, that's, That's like the number one idol that's listed again and again. I don't know if you can read a page of the New Testament without facing the warning of the idol of greed. So we must take, I think, that wisdom to heart. Is it possible that we have disguised in ourselves the idol of money by constantly looking at other people who have more money and saying we're not like them? Is that possible? Is there a an idol of money dwelling within us. Perhaps the best question to ask you to diagnose that is this. Jesus is standing in front of you. You are saying, I want to follow you. And Jesus answers you these words. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If those words are spoken straight to you, how would you respond? How would you respond if the cost of the kingdom was sell all of your possessions and give to the poor? Can you say yes? And if not, then I believe we need to look in our hearts and do the warfare that is required to answer the question, why do I balk at that? Why is that? Why is that such a scary sentence to me? Because underneath all of that may very well be the idol of greed, the idol of wealth. Now, does selling all that we have, is that what equals eternal life? Is that what we're to take away from this? If I just sell all my possessions, that buys my ticket into eternal life? Is that what Jesus is saying in verse 21? No. No. You do not get into the kingdom of God by selling all of your possessions. There is no works way into the kingdom. What Jesus is doing in this statement is exposing the idol of wealth in this man's life. Eternal life is, is, it comes by this way and this way only, forsaking our self-sufficiency for the true security of faith. When Jesus says this sentence, the main words are, follow me. Follow me are a total, all-encompassing command to make your life entirely centered upon Christ. When we see the words, follow me, to Peter and Andrew and the first disciples in chapter 1, they drop their nets and they follow him. They leave everything and follow him. The whole idea involved in the words, follow me, is that all that you are is now in me, and all that you have is, is, is given to me. It is a stark command. Follow me is to say, he is Lord over all including our wealth and our possessions. The words follow me are telling us that our existence with God is that of a steward. Everything that we have is on loan from him, and everything that we have must be given for him. I think it's worth considering this perspective. Back in the Old Testament, David, one of the richest men that we find in Scripture, says in a prayer as he is preparing the offerings for the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 12 and 14. He says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. You see, the perspective and understanding the, the sovereignty and the lordship of God is that all that we have is from God. And all that we do when we give to God is give back to him what he has given to us. The idea then is we do not possess anything. We are merely stewards of what we have. And that is what is lying underneath the question that Jesus is asking. Go sell all that you have. He is asking the question, do you recognize my lordship? to sell all that you have? Do you recognize that you are a steward? The only way that Jesus could make this command and it be reasonable 
is that the truth of the matter is we are only stewards of all that we have. Everything that the man had was already God's. So when we think about stewardship, does that view reflect your view? Do you believe what you have worked for, what you have, what you've amassed, what sits in your house, what fills your, your property is really God's? Do you believe God, Jesus has the right to say, if, ne- if I want it, give it back? And this is the question of, of the lordship over our lives. The disciples view themselves as stewards of God's riches, I, all that I have is not mine, but his. This is why we pray, if we pray in faith, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because we believe everything that we need for existence comes through God. Our daily bread, which covers everything, comes from God. We forsake self-sufficiency by living as a steward. By recognizing God's lordship over our stuff and recognizing that all that we have is a gift and must be used and managed as a gift. Do you thank God for all that you have? That's one way to reflect that you respond uh, as the rich young ruler should have. to, To say, I thank you for all that I have. Can God ask anything of you? If not... Why not? Why not? We must forsake our self-sufficiency if we are going to respond to the Lordship of Christ. Third. Third, as we look at this third attribute of who is saved by the gospel, they possess childlike trust, They forsake self-sufficiency. The third is they depend upon God's grace alone. And here we look at that last paragraph, verses 23 to 31. Jesus continues talking privately to the disciples. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. The disciples are absolutely astonished at this idea that wealth could be a barrier, could be a hindrance to the kingdom of God. Because the way their culture works is not all that much different than the way our culture works. If you've got money, you're apparently doing something right. And those who are uh, full of wealth in the first culture, look, they, they believe, well, that's, that person is blessed. And if that person is blessed, they have to be in the kingdom of God. And so the disciples are absolutely astonished that Jesus is saying, wealth can actually keep you out of the kingdom of God. And we hear these famous words, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' words here cannot be sidestepped. There is a literal metaphor being used here. That's a That's a bad way to say it. Jesus is using this to express something very literal. The reason that you can't see a camel go through the eye of a needle is because an eye of a needle is super, super small and a camel is super, super big. It's not that it's very hard to get through the eye of a needle. It's that it can't be done. The implication of that metaphor is it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It is impossible for man to to save himself. It is impossible to save 
ourselves. Verse 26. Who can be saved is the question. Who can be saved if this is true? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. Do we accept those terms? Every single one of us, I think, fundamentally believes for salvation to be fair, there must be something I can do to be saved. But the gospel is the antithesis of there is something I can do to be saved. The gospel is grace alone. The only way that you can be saved is that God does the impossible, that God gives you the gift that you could never accomplish on your own. You must recognize in and of yourself it is impossible You are disqualified by sin. You lack the ability to make yourself righteous. You have no leverage. You have no deal to bargain with the Almighty. Everything you have has been given to you as a gift, so you cannot stand in front of Him and bargain. He owns it all already. It is impossible for you to save yourself. Those are Jesus' words. They are in red, and they cannot be avoided. But... God, but God, if you look at verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God alone can do it. God alone does do it. This is grace alone. How has God made the impossible possible? How has he done it? He has done it by Christ crucified. All the unrighteousness, all the disqualification that you have heaped up in your life are heaped upon Christ to pay and remove entirely the penalty of your sin. And all of the righteousness and all of the trust and all of the faith that you lack, that you cannot perform, is in him perfectly accomplished in his righteous life. And so his resurrection from the dead becomes your resurrection, your promise of eternal life. And then in knowing this, this is is where we find God gives us all the grace that we need. Verses 29 to 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. It is by grace alone that you have been saved. And then once you are saved, it is God's grace that gives you what you need. Let me ask you, where do you experience that grace? Where is that that grace of every one of your needs being met? It says you will receive mothers and fathers and children and lands Where do you think that's fulfilled? Here. That's the church. You may lose all of these things that you possessed, but in becoming Christ, you become part of his family. And so in this room amongst us is God's grace to flow back and forth to one another. As we are stewards and you are stewards, we steward one another and care for one another. But there are also persecutions. We can't skip that word. There are persecutions. How do we know if we have truly renounced self-sufficiency? How do we know? 
eventually you will face suffering for being a Christian. And if you're truly relying on self-sufficiency, when that day comes, you'll fall back on what you really rely on. You'll pull back in. But eventually you will face suffering for being a Christian. And if you face suffering for being a Christian, it's because you have nowhere else to stand but with him. The persecutions will come and they will make it very clear you're with Christ. Because in that moment you will say, I have nowhere to be, I have nowhere to to stand but in the grace of Christ. This is hard, but it gives us assurance that we are his children. And in that assurance we know that in the age to come, regardless of the persecutions we face, we enter eternal life. So who is saved? What must I do to inherit life? Who is saved? This is the person that is saved, the one who trusts like a child in the gospel, the one who forsakes any self-sufficiency and seeks their sufficiency in the gospel alone, the one who depends not upon their own works or their own credit or their own ability, but upon God's grace alone. That is the person who is saved. Jesus summarizes all of this in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Become a child, become completely dependent upon Christ, and you will become first, you will be part of the kingdom of God. But refuse that childlike trust, refuse to reject self-sufficiency, refuse God's grace alone, and you will find yourself last. This is so serious. Come to him with the trust of a child. He will take care of you. Remember, if a child can enter, it's open to anyone. Have you come to him with childlike trust, asking him to save you by his grace alone? He will surely do it. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.